This is the Ag Queen Podcast. This podcast explores the agriculture industry with the movers and shakers of those shaping it. Here's your host, Lori Boyer. Today, I'm joined by Dwayne Cantrell, and he is a managing partner and chief executive officer with Fulcrum Capital. We'll be talking more about what he does and what Fulcrum Capital is and what they do on the show today. But first, Dwayne, tell us more about yourself and your background. Very interesting background, Laurie. Grew up in the Midwest, the Kansas City area. Which my father was in the meat, actually meat processing industry. So I went to Kansas State University, got my degree in economics, tending very uh, full well to have a career in, in the commodities area, the Cargill or an ADM or something like that had offers, but also ended up going to work for a uh, regional <laughs> retail shoe company uh, out of Topeka, Kansas, uh, which eventually became Payless Shoe Source, and Payless became the world's largest retail uh, retailer of footwear globally. And president of that company exited there a number of years ago now, um, then began consulting work, and uh, mostly in venture capital and private equity, but considered around what I knew mostly, which is retail and consumer products. Did that for about seven or eight years, and then a series of events. I did a consulting job for the board of an organization called the Kansas Bioscience Authority. The KBA was not a state agency, but was created by the state of Kansas to do uh, venture investing, if you will, in the areas of the biosciences, so animal health, agriculture, but also some human health-related investments. Built a team of people there built a portfolio of 10 companies. We eventually exited that portfolio back to the state of Kansas. And then we, my then chief financial officer and general counsel, Kevin and John, who are my partners at Fulcrum, formed Fulcrum Global Capital 2018 and 19. We began investing uh, our first fund. And then kind of from there is uh, kind of the story of Fulcrum. But that's, that's roughly my background. So I've been in consumer products and retail for a good part of my career, have been in the ag space for the last dozen years or so now, roughly. Dwayne, does Fulcrum only work in the ag space then? Yeah, so Fulcrum Global Capital, uh, we're a Kansas City-based firm, uh, venture fund. And so uh, we have, I have three partners plus uh, other uh, associates on the Fulcrum team. We exclusively invest in the global food and agriculture sectors. So um, all agriculture-related uh, investments, uh, whether it be on the crop side or on production animals. Uh, we do nothing in the human health space, uh, nothing in the companion animal space. <clears throat> so it is very much food and ag focused. And I have to ask then, why stay in there when you have so much experience in consumer goods I do know somebody owns a shoe store and he has a hundred percent plus markup. It would seem to me that stuff like that has a huge markup and you might want to stay in that or go back to that. No, I, you know, I spent close to 30 years doing that and I'm a person who's kind of a, a passion for con- continuous learning. And, and um, so to me it was a, that was coming back to my roots. Our family had a family farm in South Central Missouri as well. And my father, I said, was in the meat industry. And so, and my initial, original intent coming out of college was to really be in the kind of the food and ag industry. Um, so even though I spent a lot, large part of my career in consumer products and retail, there's a lot of parallel there. There's a lot of connections there. I mean, ultimately, everything we produce 
is going to get consumed by uh, someone on a global basis. And so uh, that that view of the consumer, that view of what motivates the consumer, what drives the consumer to, to, to decisions, their choices, is very much paralleled with what we see and what I experience in the retail sector as well. And certainly glad you stayed in the agriculture industry. Dwayne, when you first started Fulcrum, how did you go about finding clients and businesses to work with? Well, so there's two components. Certainly there's our, our investor base. And Gloria, I'll share just briefly. You know, most venture funds really are a lot of their LPs or limited partners. That's the investors are, you know, foundations and endowments and pension funds and large institutional investors. And we kind of started down that path initially. And I was doing a conference, a presentation on the coming disruption of agriculture and meeting with a lot of large family offices, happened to be mostly East Coast. And as I'm talking to some of these potential investors, you know, the questions that was asked when the first one said, well, why are you located in Kansas City? And I was kind of puzzled by that and realized that her view of where food comes from is when the delivery man drops it off on the steps of her, you know, her townhome in New York. And had no clue about the, the agricultural concentration in the United States and kind of where food comes from. And a week or so later, I was presenting to a group of potential investors in southwest Kansas, and uh, they got it. They understood it. And we walked away with a large number of commitments that night <laughs> to begin our fund. And so I sat down with Kevin and John, my partners, and left. That's what we're going to do. We're going to build this fund all on investors uh, who are in the space, who are producers themselves. And so today, Lori, of the about 75% of all of our investor base is kind of from Texas to North Dakota, Colorado to the Tennessee, Ohio Valley. They represent uh, roughly five to six million head of cattle production a year, probably two and a half million head of of uh, Swine production, quarter million head of dairy, probably 50 million head of production of poultry, 30 million acres of croplands and grazing, and another seven or eight million acres of grazing lands. Plus, you know, ethanol production and banking and trucking and implement dealerships and risk management insurance. And so there's really nothing in the ag industry that we look at from a startup point of view that we don't have. An investor base who can help us sort through the operational, kind of daily practical sides of those new discoveries and technologies. So that's a big part of who we are. And then the second part of what we do, obviously, is just finding those companies that are startups. So I just was returned from San Francisco last week for a week at the World Animal Agritech and Food Tech Conference. It's a week-long conference. There are several thousand people there and hundreds of startup companies from around the world. So that's a part of kind of what we do is to help source through our networks and through conferences and through RLPs, our investors. But, you know, we'll look at close to 600 deals this year. So if you think about that, it's nearly two, two a day that we're, we're looking at. And to all that, to narrow that down to somewhere, you know, three to four investment decisions out of roughly 600. So the first, you know, half of kind of what Fulcrum is, is our LP base, which we're very proud of and very blessed that we have a, a, an LP base made up of producers and farmers and ranchers and 
livestock feeders and food processing and all those different aspects of food and, and global food and agriculture. And then we have a great network of opportunities to look at, I said, close to 600 deals a year. And those combining those two together is really what makes Fulcrum very unique from other venture funds kind of in this ag space. Very interesting, Dwayne. What are the things that are on a checklist or things that you are looking for when working with a company? Sure. So again, we're looking at a fairly early stage. Uh, what's unique and, and, and good about the ag and food industry is that we can invest in a stage we call it's called Series A. It's just kind of when the first quote unquote professional money comes into a company. Companies usually in the startup phase go through this kind of friends and family funding first, right? And we might say friends, families, and fools who are investing in loved ones who've got an idea and they're working out of their garage. And then you kind of move into angel investing, you know, maybe a few hundred thousand dollars. And then you start to move into seed investing or angel or, or series A. So we invest, we're actually take a equity stake in that company. So we're going to own some of that company uh, by virtue of our investment. And so we are, when we're making that decision, we're really the first tier of our diligence and is, first of all, does it fit our, our thesis? And the thesis really is around three things, Lori. In, inside of that global food and ag production uh, umbrella, there's three things we look at. First, does the technology or science that we're looking at here in this company improve yield or productivity, right? So, but, but also do that in a regenerative or sustainable way. We're not an ESG or an impact fund, but certainly there's logic behind the need for more regenerative and sustainable agricultural practices. So, but does it increase yield or productivity is one of the things, one of the filters we look at. The second filter that we look for is does it reduce food waste? As we all know roughly a third of all the world's food that's produced is not consumed. There are figures that say that in Africa that over 70% in that continent that just sits there and rots in the ground, if you will, for a continent in many ways starving for food, they can't get it harvested into the hands of consumers. So food waste is a big area of focus for us on a global basis. And third, we look at does it improve food safety? whether that's pathogens within our food or objects that, that lead to, to, to recalls. So we're always looking for things that improve food safety. Today, we would add maybe food security as well, or traceability in those filters. So that's kind of the first set of filters that we look for. So does it fit one of those? Secondly, uh, then we start to look at the next kind of tier of our, of our uh, diligence, we refer to the three T's. So the team, the technology, and the total addressable market. So how big is the problem in reverse order here? And we say, and mean this literally, if, if it's not solving a billion-dollar problem, it's probably not worth investing in because there's lots of great ideas, but the problem they're trying to solve just isn't that large. And so we're looking for the solutions to very large global kind of problems. So that's kind of the total addressable market. The technology is, you know, what's unique about this company's discovery or technology or, or, or its intellectual property. And so I, having just come back from a conference, I don't know how many times I spoke with new startup founders, 
who want to convince me that they've got a, they're solving a major problem. They're only one in the world doing it. And my response is always, if you're trying to solve a billion dollar problem, I guarantee you there are other people trying to do it as well. And so you just don't, you just haven't discovered them yet. You don't know who they are. Uh, but that's part of what we do, right? We're out looking for the multiple solutions and then which one's unique, which one's first to market necessarily, which one has a distinctive value to it that we think is critical in success. And then third, what's the team? And it's not just necessarily the founder. There are founders. It's who else they've surrounded themselves with, whether it be a chief scientific officer or a commercial officer or their advisory board. And we know we're investing not just in the horse, if you will, the technology, but we're also investing in that jockey as well. And so that's kind of the next layer that we start to filter and we eliminate a lot of companies just in those first two filters. It doesn't fit our thesis and it's not not kind of checking the box in the three T's, if you will. Dwayne, of course, I know this is very capital related, but you also provide other resources to help these companies once you've decided to work with them. That part goes back to our investor or LP base, Lori. That so when we sit down with a company and we talk about the potential access to five or six million head of beef production each year, or thirty million acres of cropland. Uh, or, you know, any aspect of agriculture, suddenly uh, they know that we represent them on the, on the one hand, kind of the BC arm of that U.S. ag producer, that we also can give them access to. So oftentimes, so throughout our process of narrowing down that 600 to three, if you will, we engage our, our investors and our LPs, and they're willing and eager to do so to help us vet, if you will. So once a quarter, we will bring together a group of, you know, three or four new kind of technologies or companies, let's say in the beef cattle sector or maybe dairy or maybe crop related. And we do this on a quarterly basis, roughly, and have those companies present to a subset of our investors who are also eager to understand what new technology, a little peek over the horizon, if you will, right, or around the corner of what's coming. They can become trial sites or maybe early adopters in many cases because they're desired to gain an edge on, in their operations. And so it's this marriage, startup companies getting access not just to the, the fulcrum team, but more broadly the fulcrum LP base as well. And so, you know, there's at any point in time, we probably, there are trials going on of new technologies, any number of our investors' operations, because they want to see what's going around the corner. Remember, this morning alone, I was in exchange in conversation with one of our large LPs out of the Northwest, who was asking me about three companies that he had come across, what did we know about them? I knew two of the three, and he wanted my insights to those, but also, what else in those areas, what are the companies had looked at? And so we say to our LPs, you know, kind of, they should expect a double bottom line return. Obviously, a return on their invested capital, not the return of, but on it. But also, if we are bringing them technologies and access to new technologies and systems and processes, et cetera, that can help them improve their operations, then we have failed to probably meet our promise, if you will, to our investors. So we really do engage to what we call producer panels and different committees that we use throughout the process 
to keep narrowing that down to, to the three or four decisions that we'll make in any given year. How long typically does a process take? <laughs> well, it really does vary. So there have been companies we have from first introduction, it may be 18 months, 15 months before we make uh, an investment decision. But usually I would say we'll take from first introduction, uh, two to three months, just to get it down to a point where we've chosen this particular company or companies to go into what we call deep diligence. And that deep diligence effort is probably a 60 to 90 day process. So I would say usually, Laurie, that when we have first introduction to a company within six months, we will have made a decision to invest or, or anywhere along that line past at that point in time. Dwayne, as you're talking, I'm envisioning a Shark Tank-like presentation. Is that similar at all as to how you work with companies and how you get information from them? They're kind of more one-on-one or, or they may be presenting. So how it originally begins, it usually begins, is that a founder will reach out. We'll come across someone at a conference or they'll reach out through our website or whatever it might be. And then one of us will have a conversation We'll get it logged into our kind of internal CRM system, our tracking system for for all these different opportunities. If we find it intriguing, we'll have a conversation at the following week's kind of partner and team meeting. Then we may schedule a another kind of Zoom presentation, if you will, but with a broader team. And then that kind of begins. Then there's yet, yet another level of interest. We just kind of continue down that process. So, yeah, there's a little shark tank-like part of this, where we're trying to make quick assessments over what companies are investable, if you will, and that's what we're looking for. So there is a little bit of that in it, but then the the deep diligence part really is uh, where we start to really separate kind of those that we might have an interest and those that we have, we make a final investment decision in. Once Fulcrum has made the decision to go ahead and move forward and working with a company, how long does the process last? In the venture world, we want it to last as short as possible, which means that the company gets acquired quickly. But usually I would say this. So we make an investment in the company. We would say that's probably three to seven year window, probably before they're going to be acquired or IPO or, you know, there's an exit where we get a return of and on our capital. So we do require that we we have board seats in any company that we invest in. So all of our companies that are current portfolio, we sit on those boards. We think we add value, not just because of Kevin, John and I's background and experiences. You've heard mine, but John is an attorney by by by, by education and practice, an MA and transaction attorney. Kevin uh, came up through finance and operations, particularly in the startup uh, community. So between myself and kind of global market, consumer focus, John, IP and transaction details, and Kevin kind of operational and finance, we really surround any company with, with three different and unique perspectives. And that's part of what we think we add in addition to our LP base. So we uh, began the journey of when we make that investment, there's a board that is either reformed, formed or reformed at that point in time, which we, we would be a part of. We will always bring in other investors at the same time. We never invest in a company solely or uniquely, Lori. We always look to build a syndicate of investors, other people who are investing in 
the ag and food industry. And so like we know probably every one of those funds worldwide uh, either well or, or certainly know of them. So we build that syndicate of, of investors, of like-minded folks. We formed that board and we began the process of helping them then try to move the company forward. Obviously, financing is a part of that. We've just accomplished that by the investment. But then it's also uh, helping them build that business model, the business plan, to advance their science, to make sure that they have their intellectual property documented and filed and protected, that we're you know, moving forward to expanding production, if there's a production component of this, or exposure to new markets. So we're working with them throughout that process build the company to a point where there would be interest in it being acquired, if you will. So last year, we had two companies acquired out of our fund one portfolio. One company, Covercrest, which was some original Monsanto execs and scientists who formed a company called Covercrest, was the taking through breeding a tundra weed in the mustard family called Pennycrest and turned it into a cash crop, cover crop. So instead of a cover crop being a cost to the consumer or the farmer, it suddenly is now a cash crop that has a really high positive carbon score. It it has all the attributes of a cover crop, but you also get yield off of it. And it's usually in corn, soy rotation farmers. It becomes a third crop that's planted after your corn comes out and harvested before soy goes in. Because it's naturally a tundra crop, it grows wonderfully over the winter and is harvested in early May. And there's a there's a seed pod that comes off of that, and similar to canola in its attributes. So there's two things: once you crush that seed pod, you get a really high protein feed meal additive, but also you get an oil with a high viscosity level. Again, much like canola. So it's not the world needs necessarily more canola, but what we do need is a feedstock for bio-based fuels, whether it be diesel or aviation, and in the upcoming regulatory kind of bodies that start demanding more bio-based fuels. And so three companies that we brought in to this company's investor base and board over the three years that we were invested in Covercrest. So it was acquired by a joint venture of Bayer. Bungie and Chevron. So all three really had an interest in the, in the same company, but for three different reasons. Bayer wants the seed, Bungie wants to be the crusher, and Chevron wants the oil. And so that's an, uh, an exit we had last year. That was a very positive exit for, for Fulcrum and for our investors. Second one was a grain management company that was acquired last fall by Telus or by UPL, and it's really a grain monitoring using IoT technologies to monitor grain quality, moisture, heat, et cetera. And UPL acquired that company last fall as well. So those were both about three years, 30, 30 months to 39 months in our portfolio to get them to the point where they were exited by large global companies at that point. Dwayne, what else would you like to mention here today? Well, I think there there are a couple of things. You know, I think that as I... We talked a little bit about maybe my background in, in um, consumerism, but I think there are really three, as we look today, three really major areas of um, that drive the, the new technologies. One, certainly there are 
there's the consumer side and it's a changing consumer, right? It's a consumer who is much more uh, focused around traceability and, you know, the health, if you will, or conditions of livestock or the, the soil biome. They may not understand exactly the details of that, but they want to make sure that what we're doing in agriculture is indeed regenerative, that we can meet the needs of today's demand for food without uh, adversely impacting future generations' ability to, to produce food for uh, to the demands of for consumers. So there's consumer aspects. There's certainly the what I call demographic factors that are big drivers. So whether that's global population growth growing to 10 billion people and the need to produce 70% more food in the next 30 years than we currently do, and we can do that by replacing you know a lot of chemical based nutrients and additives with biological solutions. But it's also the urbanization of the global population, right? And it's the aging uh, curves. There's a lot of demographic-related things that are driving agriculture and food. And one way of, right, I say we have to produce 70% more food, oftentimes that doesn't connect with folks. But when I say that we've got to produce more food in the next 30 years than the previous 10,000 years, that puts it in a different kind of point of view. Right? So it is an urgent need. And so we can only get there by technology because part of that urbanization drive globally is there's no more land for agriculture. There's going to be less water probably. So technology is going to have to be part of that solution. But labor as well. So if we don't begin to replace labor and labor-intensive aspects of agriculture with technology, then we're probably going to, again, going to fail to meet the need. And so I think you see consumerism. I think you see demographics, right, that are going on. But you also see geopolitical factors. I mean, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, a uh, huge ripple effect, not just on wheat production availability and therefore pricing. But look at sunflower seed, and which is the biggest, their biggest producer of sunflower seed, and how much sunflower meal is an additive to so many foods. And then you look at the fertilizer market, right? And so suddenly fertilizers are at a premium, which is driving changes towards more biological solutions at a more rapid rate. They've been around for a long time and moving slowly. Suddenly the interest in alternatives to fertilizers and insecticides and pesticides and herbicides that are biologically based, all driven by, you know, a geopolitical storm halfway around the world. So I think all of those things, and then as a result, just one more quick note, shortly, a few months after the, the invasion of of Ukraine, you know, Premier Xi in China made a very subtle kind of announcement, and that was the shifting of millions of acres, I don't know the number was, from rice to soy. and didn't get a lot of attention, I don't think, but I think if he's observing Russia, Ukraine, the world's reaction, he doesn't want to be dependent. If he chooses to take action, dependent upon Brazil or the U.S. or soy. And so even though it's short term, very hurtful and damaging to feed his own population by reducing rice, he's positioning, I think that was a subtle way of positioning his desire to be, to not be dependent upon uh, imports of soy. So, you know, Laurie, I think that there is all kinds of things that are drivers to the changes in focus and opportunity in food and agriculture that 
maybe the you know average consumer uh, is not uh, attuned to or, or thinking about. So, you know, I think it's just lastly, I'd say you know the areas that we see each year we present to our our investor base at our annual meeting, kind of what are the areas of interest or focus that we're going to be particularly interested in these next 12 months, you know, and, and within that broader thesis. And so certainly we just talked about biologicals. I think genetic advancements, both on the animal side as well as the plant side, is a huge part. And that's a little bit what Covercrest was doing in breeding a, a, a weed <laughs> into a cash crop. But there, you see the same thing going on in, in animal genetics and advancing uh, so you have less disease uh, through genetics, et cetera. But I think there are, it's the developing of both consumer desirable traits, i.e. nutrient-rich foods or less allergy food as health kind of things, or there's also agronomic traits that you're breeding for as well, like drought resistance or pest resistance, et cetera. We've talked about sustainability. I think the area of Sentech is an area that's going to be significantly disrupted in the ag space in the next 10 years, so whether that's insurance and how it's underwritten or traditional financing that goes on, the automation and digitization of agriculture, again, due to kind of strained labor uh, uh, forces. You know, the supply chain itself, an area where most of our waste occurs, that post-harvest journey to the consumer, we're losing just way too much food due to antiquated supply chain system technology. So those areas all are driven by those three big drivers of consumers, geopolitical and, and, and I think demographic kind of, of drivers that are a big part of what we focus on at a given point in time. Once again, my guest on the show today, Dwayne Cantrell, Managing Partner and Chief Executive Officer of Fulcrum Global. Thanks for tuning in to this edition of the Ag Queen Podcast with your host, Lori Boyer.